morning, West Park. You can have a seat. If you will, open back with me to Romans chapter 11, the, the passage that Paul read for us earlier, Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Let me just start by reading it again for us here. It says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What a passage, right? I've been excited to preach this one. What a passage. It's hard to mess this one up because it is amazing. And just to give you a little context here, so for the first 11 chapters of Romans, I like to think of it like Paul has been on this hike up a mountain, right? And he is summiting one of the tallest mountains in Scripture. So he's taught us about justification and sanctification and glorification. He's taught us about eschatology and eternity. He's addressed some of the biggest controversies in the church in his day. And now he gets to the end of Romans 11. And where he's going to go is he's going to pivot from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. Okay? He's going to pivot from, from right belief to how we live. And so that's where he's going in Romans 12. It's like he's going to go down and kind of go back to sea level again, and we're going to hang out there for the rest of the time. But before he does that, it's like he stops at the summit of this mountain, out of breath from the hike, and just looks back over the distance he's gone and can't help but praise God. He can't help but look back over all the things that he's been teaching us and just praise God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, is before we, we pivot, before we move into the, to the rest of Romans, we've summited one of the mountaintops of Scripture. Let's just slow down for a while and enjoy the view. That's our goal this morning. So let's just take it one verse at a time here. We'll move, we'll move through just one verse at a time. So let's just start at verse 33. Verse 33, it says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So what Paul wants us to see is that our God is so far above us. He's so far above us that we cannot fully understand him. And just know, we will never fully understand him. Eternity will not be enough to fully understand him. Paul says this, Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. That, that's, a, that's a fun image. The depth of God. The, the de There's a depth here that we can never reach. He is like an ocean without a bottom or shore. Oh, his depth. I mean, this is, this is interesting. Colin's teaching over in the hub this morning, and he, he let me on to this. He said, 5% of our oceans, think about our oceans, 5%, that's all we've explored, 5% of our oceans. There are depths in the oceans that we can't reach, even with all of our modern technology, we can't get to them. And our God created those oceans with a word, right? 
Oh, the depth of the ocean, but oh, the depth of God. We, we can't reach it. And I'm going to talk later about the, the importance of studying God, studying theology, studying about him, because thankfully there are important things that he has revealed to us about himself. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Praise God. And so we can study him and learn more about him. That's, that's an amazing thing. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But even when we do that, when we study God, it's like we're taking one of those little medicine cups, you know what I'm talking about, and taking that out to the ocean and dipping that in and studying that. I mean, praise God, he's revealed that to us, right? It's important. But he's the Atlantic Ocean, and we're studying a medicine cup, okay? He's that big. He's that glorious. You believe that? Okay, okay. you believe that? Well, let me, let me turn it a little bit. If that's true, if God is that big, if God is that glorious, if he's a God that we can't fully understand, then let me ask you this. Doesn't it make sense that we're not going to fully understand what he's doing all the time. As much as we want to, right? And as much as we think we should, we're not going to fully understand what he's doing all the time. I've heard it said, God is always doing 10,000 things, and we may be aware of three of them. And here's the thing, even the three that you're aware of probably don't make sense to you, right? Like he's that big, and so he does things that we can't understand. He is working with trillions of data points that we know nothing about. So that's what Paul is saying here in this passage when he says his ways, like in verse 33, his ways are inscrutable to us. It means they're impossible for us to fully understand. And God tells us as much. Isaiah 55, 8, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And so just know, when you are dealing with God, there's always going to be a level of mystery. And that's not a bad thing, okay? A God that you can fully understand is not a God that you can trust. I don't want a God I can fully understand. There's always going to be mystery. Here's what I found. The more I've learned about God, maybe I'll put it this way, the more money I've spent on theological education to learn about God, (laughs) the less I, or the more I realize, I don't know that much about God, okay? The more I've learned about him, I realize the less I know, okay? Because he is so big and so glorious, I can't wrap my head around him. So let's make this practical, okay? If that's true, if God is, is big and glorious and his ways are inscrutable, let me, let me just say this, because I, I know in a room this size, Some of you have come in here this morning, and you, if you're honest, if you're willing to say it, there are things that you are going through right now, and you do not understand why God would allow this to happen. You you have come in here this morning, and you're going through something, and you're like, "I, I don't get it. Here, look, I know all the things the Bible says. I know he's sovereign. I know he's in control. I know nothing takes him by surprise. I know that... I'm told that he loves me, but I, why? <laughs> like, why, why is this happening? Or maybe it's not happening now. Maybe it happened, and you're still bitter about it. Like, God, God, why? Why in the world, if you truly love me, why would this be happening? God, if this is true about you, why does life hurt so much? Because Jesus tells us this, Matthew 6, 8. He says, our Father knows what we need even before we ask him. 
That's a glorious truth. But if you're like me, sometimes you're left saying, do you really? <laughs> right? Okay, I know you're writing my story, but it doesn't feel like you're doing a really good job. Right? <laughs> I, I mean, let's, okay, I know, I'm being honest here. Right? Have you ever thought like that? God, what are you doing? Sometimes it feels like being a toddler pinned down at the pediatrician when they're getting a shot. You ever had that happen, right? You ever had that? Okay, it's, it's, it's the worst. That is one of my worst, that's the worst, one of the worst things about parenting. When you're at the pediatrician, and you know, you're the parents, and you're having to hold them down as they get this shot, and what do you know? You know you need this. <laughs> you know this is good for you. You know there's a plan in this, but they're looking at you with that look of, why are you betraying me, Right? <laughs> Like, how, how could you do this? Like, that rocked me to my core the first time Knox ever had to get a shot. Because I'm like, I'm trying to explain to him, Knox, this is a good thing. But he doesn't get it, right? Like, at that point, he's like, he's, he's a year old. He doesn't understand. His, his mind cannot understand how this would possibly be good. How a needle jamming into his leg could possibly be good. But as the parent... Your ways are far above his, aren't they? Your ways are far above his. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, right? It does. I'll talk more about that in a second. But your ways are far above his. And actually, the reason you're doing it is because you love him, right? Like, I'm I'm doing this even though it hurts because I think it's what's good for you. And look, so, so no matter where you, I know, again, everyone is either suffering or has suffered or is about to suffer, right? Like, every, like that's, that's life in a sinful world. But let me say this. This is what we have to trust in our suffering, as hard as that is. This is what we have to trust in our suffering. Even when I can't see it, even when I can't understand what he's doing, he knows more than me. He knows more than me. If you come up to me after the service, And you ask and you say, why am I going through this? I could give you a couple general answers, right? I mean, the Bible does give us some stuff here. So even in Romans, Paul talks about how our suffering produces perseverance and produces character, right? Suffering is essential for our formation. If our goal is to be formed into the image of Jesus, which it should be, suffering is essential to that. We're told in Hebrews, Jesus learned through his suffering. So suffering is a great teacher, Right? So maybe that's, I mean, God is always doing that. Um, it could also be this God also uses suffering as a megaphone to get our attention. He uses the smelling salts to wake us up. C.S. Lewis, who I'm going to quote a lot today, said, It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So that's, that's true too, right? Maybe that's what God is doing in your suffering. But ultimately, here's what I'm going to tell you I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. Here's the thing. I'm just a fellow toddler getting pinned down on the table a lot, getting shots, right? His ways are inscrutable to me too. I'm often left asking, why? Why? I was talking with someone else the other day, and and, and a friend of mine, and he said, you know, I get it that God is working. Uh, You know, he's teaching me through this. But I've got the lesson already, right? Like, I, I understand. It's like, you know, it's like when, when your kid has to get multiple shots. It's like, I already got the shot, okay? I feel like that a lot. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? So if you come and ask me, I'm going to say, I don't know. But here's what I will remind you. I'll remind you what it can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love you. 
okay? That, like, I, 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 if that's what you're feeling this morning, walking in here suffering, that it must mean that he doesn't love you. It can't mean that. I promise you, it can't mean that. Mean that. Here's the proof. Here's the proof. The cross of Jesus is the proof. Right? The cross of Jesus is the proof. Because on the cross, Jesus put himself on the hook for our suffering. So God, so okay, we may ask, God, what are you doing? Well, God, God himself suffered, right? He's not distant. God himself knows what it's like to go through what you're going through. I love this. Tish Harrison Warren put it this way. She said, Jesus left a place where there is no night to enter into our darkness. He met with blisters and indigestion, with fractured relationships and the death of friends, with an oppressive empire, the indignity of poverty, and the terror of violence. One night he sweat blood, asking the Father to spare him from agony, weeping in the lonely darkness while his friends fell asleep. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And soon afterward was tortured to death. Listen to this. God did not keep bad things from happening to God himself. He did not keep bad things from happening to God himself. Jesus became the toddler and took the shot. He's been through it. He has been through it. And so he is not asking us to experience something that he hasn't experienced himself. And so what we're left with is humbling ourselves and admitting that just because we can't think of a good reason for something to happen doesn't mean there isn't one. That takes a lot of humility but just because we can't picture it, just because if I was writing my story, I would write it a different way, doesn't mean that God is not writing a better story. Before I move on, let's, let's meditate on this a little bit longer. Let's sit here a little bit longer. Let's think about all the things that he knows that we don't. Here's the thing. So I was born in, in 1992, okay? And I am alive today in 2023, Okay? God has been around forever, <laughs> okay? So I'm here, 1992 to 2023. God has been around as far back as we can possibly think. There was never a time where he was not here. And he will be here for as far ahead as we can possibly think. There is not a time where God was not here, and here I am, right? He is the alpha and the omega. It means he is the A to Z. I'm not even a letter, right? Like, like I'm not. And so here's the thing. When, when you ask, what is God doing? When you ask, what is his plan in all this? That's a little like showing me a movie and allowing me to see two seconds and then having me explain the plot, okay? I can't do it. And if you're older than me, you get three seconds, okay? Like, that's great. If you're, if you're older than me, I know, like, like, you can take three seconds. I can't do it. I can't explain it based on that. So I can't know what he's doing. Let me take that a little bit even deeper, something I was thinking about this morning. Here's the other thing. You know, out of my 30 years here on earth, 10 of them, I've actually been unconscious. You know that? Ten of them, so, so every day for eight hours, I ha actually have to shut down and not be conscious of what's going on around me, okay? If you want to know how little you are and how little control you actually have, you have a nightly reminder when you go to sleep, right? 
Because as you do that, as you, as you shut down, God is still holding the universe in his hands. Right? He is still holding the universe in his hands. Humility. Right? Humility. There's going to be stuff he knows that I don't. And so maybe I should shut up, <laughs> sit down, and just be humble. Right? Because he knows things that I can never understand. This is the context of verse 35. It says this, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? It's a quote from Job, and it's a friendly reminder that God doesn't owe you anything, including an explanation of what he's doing, right? You remember Job's story? Okay, if you haven't read Job's story, go read it. It's in the book of Job in the Old Testament. And some, you know, I'll summarize it like this. Sometimes we ask, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> Job. Okay, right? Like, like that's, that's the worst that can happen. What happened to Job? Because he, he, he loses his health. That all goes away. He loses his wealth. He was a wealthy man. We're also told he's a good man, by the way, a really godly man. But he loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses his 10 kids. And he's left with a wife and three friends. And he probably wishes they were dead. Okay, like honestly, like if you go read the story, because they're not helpful at all. Like, they're, they're horrible. Like, they make everything worse. And so he goes to God, and, and again, I'm going to say this. I don't think God is threatened by this. It doesn't seem like in the, in the story that, that, that God is threatened by this. But, but Job goes to God with some questions. He accuses him of falling asleep at the wheel, is basically what he accuses him of. He says, you're not writing the right story. You've forgotten about me. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. And God very politely reminds him just how little he knows. And it is poetic, and it is beautiful, and it's, it's just perfect. Go, it's worth reading this afternoon. But, but basically, God just reminds him. He puts him in his place. He reminds him, I am God, and you are not. And he basically has this mic drop moment. And I love this. This is, this is Job's response. Here's what he says. I put my hand over my mouth. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's Bible speak for fine, I'll sit down, right? Like, you win, right? I'll put my hand over my mouth. And so that's it. I'm going to keep beating this dead horse again and again and again. This whole passage, Romans 11, 33 through 36, humility, right? Humility, understanding that he is God, and we are not, and we will not always understand what he's doing. Winston Churchill once said this about a political opponent, he said, he's a humble man with so much to be humble about. That's us, right? That's us. I mean, we, we, as Christians, how can we not, as Christians who know the God of the universe, how can we not be the most humble people around? We know the God of the universe. We are humble people because we know that we have a lot to be humble about. You see that? But let me, let me do something. Okay, before we move on, one of my favorite things, Martin Luther said, we are always like a drunk guy trying to ride a horse. We get on and we fall off one side, and then we get on and we fall off the other side. We always tend to overcorrect. Okay? And so here's the thing, don't overcorrect. Okay? You are small. Right? That's why the psalmist says, what is man that you're mindful of him? You are, um, your way, our ways are not God's ways. However, God is mindful of us. Okay, So don't take it too far where we say 
Well, why would God care about us? He does, right? We are, we are so much smaller than him. But also, what are we told? We are made in his image, okay? So, so you, are, you are, in that sense, very glorious because you are made in the image of that God that we're talking about. That's amazing. The Smoky Mountains aren't made in his image. The Grand Canyon's not made in his image. Your dog's not made in his image. But you are, and so, this, see, this, this is, we can't fall off either side because this both leads us to humility. We should be humble. But also, it shows us our worth. And it shows us the worth of people around us that we are made in the image of this God. That's amazing. That is amazing. I love that C.S. Lewis captured this so well in one of the Narnia books, Prince Caspian. Aslan tells Prince Caspian this. He says, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. It's both those things, right? It's both those things. And let me continue. Let me keep going. God is transcendent, bigger than we could ever imagine, and yet he loves us, okay? Not only are we made in his image, he loves you. He cares about you. He invites us to call him Father, right? We, we, we see this right at the beginning of the, of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, how would be your name? It's both those things. We hallow his name. We give him glory. But also, he's our dad, right? He's our Father. He's close to us. He cares about us. He invites us into our fa- his family, and our pain matters to him. So that's big. So that's what I don't want you to hear when I, when I use the shot analogy. I don't want you to hear that I'm saying, get over it. That's not how God treats our pain. He cares about it, right? When, when my boys are getting shots on that table, I know the plan. I know where this is going. And I also feel their pain because shots hurt. <laughs> and I want to take them off the table, but I know it's good for them, right? And so here, he's not distant, He is not distant. He cares about what you are going through. As I said, so much that Jesus was willing to go through it himself. And so in our our suffering, a lot of Christians, I think, think go too far this way where they say, well, God's in control. Chin up. But that's not actually how Jesus handled suffering. Jesus is standing with his friends, Mary and Martha, knowing he's about to raise their brother, and he weeps with them. It's okay to weep, but the whole time we're weeping, we trust that God is still good, right? We trust that he is good. Let's move to verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? So here Paul is is quoting an Old Testament passage from Isaiah, and, and this flows along with what we've been talking about. If God's ways are so high above ours, who can give him counsel? Think about what a counselor does. Have you ever had a good counselor in your life? What they're there to do is they're there to reveal the blind spots that you don't see in yourself. Right? I love this. John Newton said, I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistence. I am a riddle to myself. And so what a good counselor does, and I'm thankful for some, some men and women that God has given me who have been good counselors, who have helped me to see the blind spots that I have, and pointed me to Jesus. That's what a good counselor does. Well, Paul's point here is, 
God doesn't need that. <laughs> God doesn't have any blind spots. We do. He knows. He, he doesn't have any blind spots, any sin to point out. We do. We do. And let me point this out. So he is a counselor, right? He's the one. We go to him for counsel. He doesn't need our counsel. But I love this. That, that verse I quoted was Isaiah. This is also in Isaiah. Isaiah 9.6. There's a, a prophecy about Jesus. And you know what it calls him? It says he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. So Jesus will come as a carpenter from Nazareth. Fully human, just like us. But also the God that we are talking about this morning. The counselor, not needing a counselor. John 1 tells us this. First three verses, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. And so Jesus... Though he came and lived a life for 33-ish years, he knows the whole movie, right? He is God. He does not need our counsel. And so let me say this. Let me say this. Let me, actually, let me ask you a question. If I ask you to describe, to describe Jesus, think about this in your head. If I ask you to describe Jesus, how would you describe him? How would you describe him? Well, let me ask this. Would the word wise come up? How about smart or brilliant? Here's the thing. This is what I worry about with us sometimes. Sometimes we only think about Jesus as our Savior, and he is that, praise God. But do you know that Jesus is the wisest, smartest, most brilliant person ever to live? Do you know that? There is no one who has lived who knows more about how to navigate life. There is no one who has lived who knows more about what human flourishing actually looks like than Jesus. We take him and we put him in this box and we say, okay, he's our savior. He's my Lord and savior. But we forget what, what, what Lord means. That we're following his way of living, right? Because he knows the best way to live. That's, what our, that's our goal. So here's, here's what I, I challenge you, okay? If you're an elementary school teacher, or you work in IT, or you run a business, or you're retired, does Jesus have wisdom for that? Yeah. Yeah, yes. Yes, yes he does. He is the wisest person to ever live. Don't compartmentalize him into your church life. His wisdom is the best wisdom that there is. There are a lot of wisdoms in books and podcasts and TED Talks, but none of it compares to the wisdom of Jesus. And so here's, here's what we have to ask, right? Okay, Jesus never had kids. Jesus never married. Jesus never retired. Jesus never did your job unless you're a carpenter. But how would he do those things? That's the question. How would he do those things? There's nothing in the Bible about how to, how to do plumbing, right? But what kind of plumber would Jesus be? Okay? You see what I'm saying? Jesus has wisdom for life. As the great counselor, his wisdom is the best wisdom. So the question we ask is, what would he do if he were me? What would he do if he were me? 
Let's move to verse 36. Paul starts by saying this. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. So that's really a, a summary of everything we've talked about, right? Where does everything come from? God. God. Is there anything that's out of his control? No. Right? No, I, I love to think about it like this. There is nothing that comes to you that doesn't first go through his fingers. Okay? He's never, oh, I can't, you know, he's never missing the catch. It always first goes through his fingers. It always goes through him. And where's everything headed? To him. <laughs> to God. It's all about him. And so let me just continue beating on the dead horse. How crazy is it when we swagger around like we run the place? Right? How, if that's true, if it's from him and through him and to him, why do we swagger around with all this pride? And not the good pride that comes from being made in the image of God. This pride that says, this is all about me. <laughs> How insane is that? And let, and let, me, let me say this, because I know what you may be thinking. You may be thinking, oh yeah, I know the politicians you're talking about. I know the actors you're talking about. I know the, you know, I know the athletes you're talking about. I know that guy at my work that you're talking about. Absolutely. But look, do you know this? Pride actually shows up in different forms. Okay? It doesn't just look like the swaggering around that I was talking about. It shows up in different forms. So let me ask, are you anxious about anything? Is there anything that kept you up last night? Do you wake up in the morning with that weight on your chest that just won't go away? Do you live your life with that bubbling anxiety in your soul throughout the day? And I don't ask that to judge. I'm, I'm just describing my own experience a lot of the time. Okay? I, I've shared that before. I am a warrior who God is doing a work on. Okay? I've come a long ways. He's doing a work on me, but, but this is my natural tendency too. But let me point out, let me point out, the reason for much of our anxiety is actually a lack of humility. Amen. And that sounds strange because when I'm anxious, I don't look, I don't have the swagger and all that. That's not it. I don't look like that. But when I am anxious, I am saying that I know more than an all-powerful God. Tim Keller says anxiety is, at the end of the day, fearing that God will get it wrong. So maybe we should do this together. Just go, he's not going to get it wrong, okay? Right? He's not going to get it wrong. We can, we can breathe because he is not going to get it wrong. And here's what I've found that as a warrior, the antidote to anxiety is worship. It's giving him the glory. It's doing what Paul says to do. Look at, look at the last line. He says, to him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the antidote to anxiety right there, giving him the glory. So after everything we've discussed, what are we left to do? We're left to give him the glory and to give him our worship. And let me say this about worship. Okay, this, is, this, is, this is so key for this right here. This passage teaches us, when you take it together with all of Romans 11, it teaches us that doxology, so our worship, can never be separated from theology, our beliefs about God. Those two have to stay together. When you separate those things, 
disaster is coming. Because think about this. If you only have worship without theology, then who are you worshiping? (laughs) Right? Like if you only have worship, but you don't know who God is, then then what's it all for? Right? I've showed you that, that, you know, we don't know. There's so much about God we don't know. But from he's revealed stuff to us. Right? He's revealed himself to us through Christ and through his word. And so all true worship flows out of reflecting on who he is and what he's done. That's how all true worship has to come out of who he is and what he's done. And we see that model for us. Why is Paul worshiping right now? Because for 11 chapters, he's gone on and on and on about how amazing and great God is. Right? Theology leads to worship. We need theology. We need to know who God is for our worship. So let me point out, in your bulletin today, short little commercial here, but it ties in, I promise. In your, in your bulletin today, you have this, this brochure for the West Park Training Program. Okay? And so what you'll see, if, if you open that, what you see is that there are a lot of theology topics that we get into in this program. Why do we do that? Why do we do, why do, we do that? Because we want to make you better worshipers. <laughs> That's it, right? We want to know who God is so that we can most effectively worship him. Because the study of theology should lead us to love God more and to worship him more. Paul's going to tell us in, in Romans chapter 12 to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Amen. So theology, it's key for transformation. It's key for transformation. Before I move on, let, sorry, let me talk about one more thing in here. I wasn't going to, but Doug gave me the ends. I'm going to do it because he said something earlier that, that stuck out to me. Look at this. If you also look in there, so we have the, the systematic theology topics. We also have spiritual disciplines. Okay? It's not just that we learn things. We also practice those things, okay? And that's what practicing does. Training, practicing, it takes what you know, and it actually gets it into your muscle memory so you live like it's true, okay? There's a lot of people who know all these theology topics, but if you look at their life, they don't, look, they don't live like it's true whatsoever. And so the spiritual disciplines, what they do is they actually take that and they put them into our muscle memory. And so let me, this is why Doug gave me the end. He was talking about Laura here. And he told that funny story about, you know, the days where she wasn't even really, you know, paying attention because she, you know, she just had surgery. And she gets off stage and she asks, was that good? And he said, yeah, it's good. Why? Why? Because she has trained herself so much. And correct me if I'm wrong, Laura. But she has trained herself so much. She has practiced so much that she didn't even have to think about it anymore. She's not up there thinking, what would a good musician do? She's just trained herself to be a good musician. (laughs) And so she automatically, without thinking about it, does what a good musician would do. And so what we're doing when we do these practices is we are taking these theological truths that we've learned and we're making them part of our muscle memory where we actually live them out, right? We live more like Jesus, We don't just have to keep asking, what would Jesus do? We just do what he would do in that situation, okay? Sorry, tangent, but that's that's the goal, right? That's what we're doing. We're taking it a little bit deeper. So we need theology for our worship. Look at the other way. We can't have worship without theology. Okay, sorry, we can't have worship without, let me change that around. We can't have theology without worship, okay? We can't have theology without worship. And let me be honest, um, 
this is actually the point I worry more about for our church. Okay? Our church, we, we love our theology for the most part. I'm not, you know, that's a generalization. We love learning about God. We love diving into his word. We love learning new things about him. I, I know enough of people in this room to know that's not our problem. But there's a warning to us. If you, you know, if you, if you take the West Park training program, you're going to hear me say something over and over and over and over again. If you're learning more things about God and it doesn't lead you to your knees in worship, if it doesn't lead you closer to him, if it doesn't make you love him more, then that stuff you're studying is actually quite destructive. It's doing you no good. Because the point of theology is to lead us to worship. Right? The point of theology is to know God more, not to win a theological argument. Amen. It's to know who he is and to love him more, to love God so that we can love people and impact the world. That's, that's what we're about, right? To love him first. Thomas Kempis said it this way, What good does it do then to debate the Trinity if by a lack of humility you are displeasing to the Trinity? So to, so to all the theology nerds out there, and I am the, the foremost, does your study of God bring you to your knees in praise? If it doesn't, you're either not studying our God or you're not getting it. Okay, You're totally missing it because the point of theology is doxology. It's doxology. Let me close with this. One of my favorite stories, and, and this is from a favorite story from a favorite book, and it's my second Narnia quote this morning, so, so forgive me. But in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, four kids go to this world of Narnia. And so they go to this world, and, and they find out, they hear from these friends they make, the, the beavers, about Aslan. And Aslan, if you haven't read the story, Aslan is the Jesus character of the story. He represents Jesus in the story. And so they hear about Aslan, and they hear that he's a lion, and they get a little concerned. <laughs> they say, I, I don't know that I want to meet a lion. Okay? That, that's a little scary. And they ask the beavers, they say, is he safe, this lion that you're talking about? And Mr. Beaver responds with this famous line. line. He said, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan is a lion. He's not a house cat. So he's not safe. Our God is the Lion of Judah. Okay? He's not a house cat. You can't domesticate him. Okay? We like to make God this safe little version that we can fully understand. He is not that. But you know what he is? Good. Amen. Right? He is good. Have you experienced that? I have. <laughs> Even when I can't understand him, he is good. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you are good, that you are, um, no, you're not safe. <laughs> There's a lot of times that I, that I have questions for what you're doing. I have questions about how you're writing my story. But I can trust that you are good. 
I can trust that, that I can look back and know that you've never failed me. You haven't ever failed me. And I can live in that truth. Lord, I love you. I thank you that we have such a big, glorious God. Lord, thank you. Thank you. And I'm, Lord, I'm sorry where I have lacked humility. <laughs> I see right now how stupid that is when I try to make things all about myself. I ask for me and everyone here that we, when we walk out of here, we will make everything about you. Our jobs, our families, we will surrender everything to you because that's what you deserve. All the glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.